tonight. We'll begin by singing Psalm 67 in, in a Scottish Psalter. We'll stand to sing. Lord, bless and pity us, shine on us with thy face, that the earth thy way and nations all may know thy saving grace. We'll sing the whole psalm. just sung, a prayer offered in the Old Testament, one which has been answered uh, to some extent throughout the New Testament era, as all different kinds of people hear the gospel and discover that you're the God of salvation. And we give you thanks, Lord, that that particular psalm while it's a song of praise, it's also a prayer that you would bless and pity us. And the way you bless and pity us is uh, to increase your kingdom. And we ask you, Lord, that that would be happening, that we would be seeing it here, but also it would be happening everywhere. And the amazing thing is that you're kingdom survives, uh, despite all the opposition that's been ranged against it uh, ever since Jesus uh, returned to heaven and sent out his uh, apostles and they started to form the church and it spread throughout the world and, and some, sometimes the opposition was intense, attempts were made 
to get rid of it. As we can see in the efforts of Saul of Tarsus, and even though he was converted, the opposition didn't come to an end uh, with his conversion. Others took his place, and that's been the story of your kingdom down the ages, uh, that often it, it grows in circumstances where the opposition is the hottest, and that's still happening today. And help us, Lord, to marvel at the way you're able to maintain your kingdom in existence. Whatever else uh, we say about it, it certainly doesn't operate on the principles that govern the kingdoms of this world. And if ever there's an example uh, of something being weak and then it being strong, it is your kingdom. And we thank you, Lord, that the reason why it survives is because of your presence and your grace. And that's the hope that we have uh, for Inverness and the hope that anyone has, whatever they are, who wants to see the kingdom make progress. As you yourself uh, said to the disciples, uh, without you, we, they could do nothing, which of course did not mean that they should do nothing, but it did remind them that without you they are powerless, but, but with you then what can hinder things? And we just ask, Lord, that in your uh, mercy you would help us to see the kingdom grow dramatically. Uh, we live in times where, from our perspective, things seem small and getting smaller, but then we don't see everything. In fact, we see uh, very little of what's going on as far as your kingdom is concerned. When you work in the hearts of someone, no one else may be aware of it. And that could be happening to people who pass us in the street, and we're just not aware that you're working in their hearts. And that kind of thing just goes on. And we thank you, Lord, for that, that you're always at work, um, seeking for sinners, seeking for those who are lost. But it is important for us at times to understand what your kingdom is like. And in your word, you explain it to us, and sometimes those explanations are, are given in straight descriptions, and at other times they're given in parables. And as we look at one of these parables tonight, and we pray that you would help us to appreciate it and to learn from it. It wasn't just said to the initial hearers, because it describes what life will be like in your kingdom while your kingdom is in this world. So we pray for your instruction 
and that you would help us to understand it. We pray that you would remember us as we start another week. We thank you, Lord, that um, the Lord's Day is meant to be an impetus for us to live in the next six days, almost a kind of catalyst that pushes us out into the world uh, as your witnesses, and that we are empowered and given grace, because here we are uh, participating in the means of grace, and the means must have a reason, and part of one of the reasons is that in the days ahead of us that we would uh, serve you. And we just ask, Lord, that we would be strengthened by our time together and that you would, by your Spirit, be giving to us uh, the grace that is promised. And we thank you, Lord, that that grace can affect our minds and it can affect our affections and it can affect our choices. And we just pray that it would have the effect that you plan and that you bring about. So, Lord, remember us while we're together. We pray you bless those who are away from us, that you remember them, each one, uh, where they are. Uh, bless other gatherings similar to ours tonight here in this city and indeed throughout our country and throughout the world. Remember the parts of the world where your church is suffering. We pray for them that you would remember them. And we pray, too, for them, those who are living in difficult places uh, where the, the circumstances may not be persecution, but there may be still a lot of fear and a lot of suffering. We think of your church in Ukraine, and you would remember it. And we pray that you would just remember your church, wherever it is. Lord, we pray for the world. We are in a world that's facing lots of problems. Uh, and we just ask that you yourself would um, come and help those who are trying to deal with the problems. Although we suspect that behind a lot of the problems is our departure from yourself. And that uh, repentance, uh, national repentance, would be a good start for us to see better times. And not just for our country, but for virtually every country. So, Lord, we pray that you bring that about. It's not beyond your power. And we just ask that you would work so that people would see the value of repentance. It's not something to be embarrassed about or shun away from. It's an experience that's spiritually good. And even if it involves finding out things about ourselves, it also enables us to find out just how much you can forgive and from where you can restore. And we just ask you, Lord, to give repentance to the world. That's why Jesus has been exalted. He's been exalted to give repentance. And we just ask that, that would happen throughout the world, even this day itself. So do that, Lord, we pray. Your kingdom is one that's marked by repentance. And we just pray that we would be 
uh, penitent people, and that you would add uh, to the numbers that we see of such people. Remember, any we know who are not well, we commit them to you. We just ask, Lord, that whatever treatment they are getting, it will be blessed to them. So be with us in the service, Lord, we pray. And remember us all for good, and lead and guide us as the good shepherd. And pardon our sins, for Christ's sake. Amen. We'll sing from Psalm 80 and sing Psalms, uh, verse 12. And we'll sing to the end, verse 19, and we'll stand to sing. Why did you break down its fences so that all may pluck its fruit? Creatures of the field devour it, wild boars tear it from the root. Verses 12 to 19. Why did you break down its fences so that all may pluck its fruit? Creatures of the field devour it, wild boars tear it from the root. Turn to us, O God Almighty, Look and see from heaven above, tend this vine your hand has planted, and the sun you raised in love. See your vine cut down and withered, and its branches burned with fire. Your rebuke has crushed your people, and they perish in your arm. Let your hand be placed in blessing on the man at your right hand, on the Son of Man you've chosen. Alone you cause to stand, then we will not wander from you, turning from you to our shame. Strengthen us, revive and heal us, then we'll call upon your name. Look on us, Lord God Almighty, let us see your glory bright. Turn us once again towards you, come and save us, give us light. Uh, we can turn to Matthew chapter 13, and we can read from verses 24 to 43. 
put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed <clears throat> weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. When he left the crowds and went into the house, then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. And may God bless that reading. Now we can now sing Psalm 87 from Sing Psalms, and we can sing the whole psalm. On Jerusalem's holy mountain he has founded his abode. More than all of Jacob's dwellings, Zion's gates are dear to God. We'll stand and sing the psalm. On Jerusalem's holy mountain, he has founded his abode. More than all of Jacob's dwellings, Zion's gates are dear to God. Glorious 
things of you are spoken, Zion city of the Lord, many drawn from all the nations as your people I record. I will name as those who turn back to the chapter we read there, Matthew 13, and we can reread verses 36 to 43. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. And the good seed is the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the clothes of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. I suppose uh, people today have many questions. And I suppose it's true to say uh, that thoughtful people are disturbed by what's going on. And that's true in society in general, and it's also probably true in the church. For example, despite all the efforts that have been made, and to bring about a better society, why do people still do wrong? I mean, it's just a fact of life that um, 
that wrong things are still taking place uh, throughout all the societies of the world. Not one society has ever found the answer to it. How do we stop people doing wrong? And I suppose a question that comes up in the church <clears throat> is, will the gospel ever be successful again? Certainly a question is asked <clears throat> about our society, isn't it? Because, as we know from uh, records of the past, the past was certainly much uh, more um, fruitful as far as the gospel was concerned. And that the proportion of people in society who would have identified themselves as Christians is much, was much larger in the past than it is today. Although having said that, there might be as many individual Christians around as there was in the past. The problem we face, of course, is that there's a lot more people alive today. Where do we get answers to these questions? And do they need long, complex explanations? These two questions that um, I've asked, why do people do wrong? And will the church be successful? Do you think they're answered in this parable? In this parable of six or so verses, does Jesus explain why people do wrong? And does he explain whether or not the church will be successful? And I think he does. But hopefully we'll see that as we make our way through the parable. Sometimes in order to understand the parable, we have to have some awareness of uh, the background to it. And there may be various things that each of us might highlight and say, I wish we knew about that. But one thing we do need to know is the nature of what's described here as weeds. The particular weed that is in mind is a weed called darnel. I know nothing about weeds apart from the fact that I don't like them. But uh, <clears throat> this particular weed is called a darnel. And the unique feature about it was it was very like wheat. As a matter of fact, it was so like it, you couldn't tell the difference. And it was customary, in Israel certainly, because they couldn't tell the difference, just to leave them. They just left it to the harvest. Because <clears throat> in the initial stage, it was almost impossible to distinguish between a weed and a good wheat. And that's why Jesus says in the parable, he has the owner of the field saying, leave it to the harvest. Because 
apparently the time that the, the difference became obvious was when the heads of wheat began to show itself. But by that time, the roots of the darnel and the wheat were intertwined. And you couldn't pull the weeds out without damaging the wheat. But the point I think that Jesus is making in the parable is you won't be able to tell the difference between the weeds and the real thing. Which is quite a startling thing, isn't it? Because we're, we're used to um, assuming that there's a vast difference between a Christian's lifestyle and a non-Christian's lifestyle. And I suppose there is a vast difference between a Christian's lifestyle and some non-Christian's lifestyle. But that doesn't mean there's a difference between a Christian's lifestyle and every single other person. The lifestyle might be quite the same because what Christianity changes is the inside. It changes why we do things. But the actual actions from an external point of view, could be done by anybody else. And when that happens, it's very hard to tell the difference, isn't it? I mean, externally, if everybody is doing the same, then how do you tell the difference? And I think that's what Jesus is highlighting here. He's talking about his kingdom in the world. And how are we going to recognize it? So we'll try and think about that in the service. Just want us to think of a few things. The first one is a good example. Disciples here show a very good example. I just want to spend a few minutes thinking about that. And then after that, who are the sores? because there's actually two swords. And then, what does the good sword do? Then there's the harvest. What will it be like? And then there's the coming kingdom. So, the good example. What is a good example? Well, the good example is, is obvious. It's there in verse uh, 36, where the disciples come to him and say, explain to us the parables of of the weeds of the field. It's not the first time in this chapter that they've asked Jesus to explain a parable. And of course, that tells us that they didn't understand the parable. I mean, we can imagine them saying to themselves, what's he talking about? What does he mean about all these this story about what happens in a farmer's field. I mean, these uh, disciples would have known full well in the farmer's field that it was quite common for the farmer just to leave the wheat and the weeds together. And they would just... Imagine the disciples hearing that. Why is Jesus talking about something that's so obvious? It just happens all the time. 
And the best thing that they did, whether one of them suggested it or not, is let's go and ask him. And when they went and asked him, he explained it to them. The implication being, if they hadn't asked him, he wouldn't have explained it. After all, what explanation is given of the parable of the hidden treasure? There's no explanation given of it. Nor is there an explanation given of the parable of the pearl of great value. And one reason why there might not be an explanation is because nobody asked him what it meant. And is, is that not still true? I mean, how do we understand the Bible? Does the meaning just come from somewhere? Or does it come in result in response to asking God to tell us? As these, as these disciples did here, Lord, explain to us what you're talking about. It's a very nice, simple story, but I just don't get it. I mean, that is what they're saying, isn't it? And the extraordinary thing about the Bible is that most of it is quite straightforward and simple as far as the words are concerned. But it's the meaning that's significant. What is meant by them? As I mentioned this morning, take Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. That's very simple. We find it on cards that we send to one another. What do we expect the person receiving the card to think about this card with this statement in it? The Lord is my shepherd. I don't know if you've ever done this. Have you gone to God with that simple statement? statement and asked him to explain it. You can even do it word by word. What does the definite article mean? The. Of course, we, in a sense, we know what it means. It means there's only one. I mean, that's the whole point of a definite article, isn't it? The Lord. Why is he called that? Why didn't David just say, God is my shepherd? Would he have meant something different if he had said that? Well, you'd still be talking about the same divine person, but he wouldn't be highlighting the same emphases. I mean, the word God, well, it means he's powerful, can do what he wants. He's almighty. But the word Lord there, especially as us, is the word with capitals, tells us it's the covenant God. The God who's made promises to us. The God who has said, I will be your God and you shall be my people. And we just go to God and we say, well, what did David mean when he put that particular word in there? Because after all, the Holy Spirit inspired him to do so. And it's not just there for the purpose of poetic variety. It's there for the benefit of our own hearts and souls and minds. So we say the Lord, the covenant God, 
the God who is for me, the God who has made loads of promises and put his own reputation connected to the fulfillment of these promises. And why does David say the Lord is my shepherd? He could have had the Lord was and the Lord or the Lord will be, and both of these are true. But the one he wanted to write was, the Lord is my shepherd. So whatever time today we want to think about it, 20 to 7, 10 past 7, the Lord is our shepherd. He remains the same. He doesn't change. And that's good to know, isn't it? Because not everything else changes. But the Lord, he is there as the covenant-keeping God. And the Lord is my shepherd. Well, that's to do with the whole issue of assurance, isn't it? He's a shepherd of all the sheep. Well, that's true. But I've seen sometimes a shepherd with a flock and as I look at them and there's, they see on the TV and there may be a couple of thousand sheep. I mean, how can each of the sheep in that particular flock regard the state of things as if he was the only sheep or it, it was the only sheep that the shepherd could see? And I have no idea if that's true in the natural world or not, but in the spiritual world, although there's millions and millions of people in the Lord's flock, go to him and say, let me have the confidence to say to you that you are my shepherd. Not because of a logical deduction that comes from the fact that he's a shepherd of all of them, so therefore he must be mine. But one that comes from our own personal experience that indicates to us that his dealings with us reveals very clearly that he is our individual shepherd. And then what does it mean that he is a shepherd? Of course, a shepherd fed and a shepherd led. But these are just elementary things. That's what the disciples do, isn't it? They took, they took the word of Jesus and took it back to him and said to him, tell us what it means. Maybe you're like me, when that happens, just jump to something else. If the disciples had done that, wouldn't be having this sermon tonight, would we? So they went and asked him. And the extraordinary thing is, he gives a very detailed answer. Now, obviously, we can't go to Jesus in the way that they did. I mean, they found what to, for them was a suitable spot inside Christ's own house, I think. 
because uh, if you trace the word house back, it looks as if it goes back to his own house. So they, so they went to where Jesus lived and asked him to teach them. And there's a sense in which we can do that, isn't there? We just go to him personally. I mean, if we try to work this one out, I think the answer took less than five minutes. The petition took about 10 seconds. And the answer took less than five minutes. And they got the answer. So Jesus must have been eager to tell them the answer. And he did. And therefore we have the explanation. That leads us to think about who are the sores. There's two sores in the world tonight, according to this parable. One of the sores is Jesus, and the other sore is the devil. That's quite stark, because we like to think there's lots of people of influence. But according to the parable, There's only two influencers. One influencer is Jesus, and the other influencer is the devil. And every single person in the world tonight, according to this parable, is the outcome of one of them. With regard to himself, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. He says that in verse 37. The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. When when we see that, well, what should we say about it? Well, one thing that sort of hits me about it is, why does he call himself the son of man? I mean, apparently, this was, those who want to count up these things, this was the name that Jesus most often used of himself. It's almost an equivalent of the personal pronoun, I. When he says the Son of Man, that's, he's saying to him, that's who I am. And it's how I think. So therefore, we would have to ask ourselves, what does the son of, title of son of man mean? It's quite common today, for example, in um, books that are written by scholars to suggest that the title son of man was used by Jesus to hide who he was, to kind of um, prevent people fully understanding who he was. Looking at how the Old Testament used the title, I think that's a rather strange suggestion because anybody that read the Old Testament would know what the title meant. And we sang about it in Psalm 80. I mean, who is the Son of Man? He's the King. He's the person with royal 
or should be the person with royal power. The problem was in Psalm 80, the current king didn't have any power because God had taken it from him. So therefore the people are praying that God would restore power to their king to let his hand be upon the son of man. It's a royal title. And when we get to Daniel 7, we see that completely because you get this incredible vision and it's a vision of Jesus of him ascending on high and going up to the throne of God as the Son of Man and receiving the nations. That's going to be his reward. And that's who Jesus thinks he is. This is his self-understanding. I'm going to be the King of Kings. I'm going to inherit all the nations. And of course, that makes a big difference when we think about this parable, doesn't it? Because this parable involves the nations. And how does Jesus think of all these nations? Or how does he think about himself in relation to these nations? And the answer is, he thinks he's king. He's going to be king. He's going to have power. He's going to be in charge. He's going to be highly exalted. And, of course, that gives a totally different picture, doesn't it, of somebody. He's telling his followers here that he is very optimistic. He must be because he's calling himself the Son of Man. He's not trying to hide anything from them. He's actually making it very plain to them. I am going to rule over everything. And therefore, we might say that, well, if he's sowing the good seed, he's going to do it very effectively. Surely he must, since he is the king with such power. At the same time, he tells us about the other sower. And the other sower, of course, he says there, is the devil. He's the enemy. He's busy sowing a swell. And as I mentioned earlier, according to the illustration in the parable, the ones that the devil is sowing, you can't tell the difference. So there's, he's sowing confusion, isn't he? He's sowing confusion. How do we tell the kingdom? So that leads us to think about what does Jesus, the sower, do? Well, as we mentioned earlier, he's the king. So where is he going to sow? Well, he tells us where he's going to sow. He tells us that in verse 38. He's going to sow in the field. What is the field? Well, the field is the world. So Jesus is going to be sowing everywhere. Now, of course, the disciples would have found this quite astonishing. They were used to God sowing in Israel. But the idea that God would sow elsewhere, well, that wouldn't have crossed their minds. But here's Jesus telling them, I am going to be sowing this seed everywhere. Not just in Israel, not just in the countries around Israel, but everywhere. And I'm going to be doing it, says Jesus. 
I'm going to be sowing this good seed. Now, it's very important, as I'm sure we've noticed, that in this parable, the seed is not the message. In the parable of the sower, the seed is the message that changes people. But here in the parable of the weeds, the seed is not the message. The seed is actually people. So Jesus is saying that all over the world, he intends to plant people. Where is he going to get them from? Where is that seed going to come from that he's going to plant all over the world? Well, there's, there's only two options. One is that he's going to create a new set of people. Or the other is he's going to change the ones that are already there. And we know what the answer is, don't we? He's going to take, if we want to use the terms of the parable, the source of the good seed is the weeds. That those who are weeds are going to become the good seed. And is that not what the gospel does anyway? I mean, people who are spiritually blind, he enables them to see. People who are in spiritual darkness, he gives them light, and they start to understand things. And through the... And he's going to plant good seed everywhere. He's got the power to do it. He's got the wisdom to do it. He's got the determination to do it. And all over the world, is that not what Jesus is doing today? People who began this morning, to use the parable's illustration, people who began it as weeds are now good seed because he has changed them and radically changed them. I mean, just imagine what our gardens would be like if every weed became a flower. It would be incredible, wouldn't it? And here's Jesus, and that's what he's saying he's going to do. He's going to take those who are planted by the devil, and he's going to replant them and make them his plants all over the world. What an extraordinary change in the lives of these people. And he does it so simply. I suppose we do have to ask the question, which of the miracles did Jesus find hard to perform? I mean, which of the miracles did Jesus find hard to perform? He just spoke the word, didn't he? And it was done. And how does he work in the lives of those he turns into good seed? How does he do it? Well, from... An external point of view, he does it through the gospel. A very simple message. 
Uh, somehow or other, these people who are like weeds, they hear the message of the kingdom. And through his secret power, because we have no idea how it works in the life of anybody else, we've got a rough idea of where Christians have worked in our own lives, but we don't really know how it works in the life of anybody else. But through his secret power, his personal dealings with people, they just embrace this simple gospel message quite extraordinarily. And he, he can work in their hearts anywhere. He can, he can do it as they're walking down the road. And somewhere in a street, they may just turn from being a weed into a good seed. Or it may be in a church service. Or it could be anywhere. But Jesus does it. And he plants them. And they start to serve him and live for him. And their inward lives are changed. And that's wonderful. When that happens, he makes them the sons of the kingdom. They are given this wonderful dignity. They go straight from being undesirable to having this incredible status. Heirs of the kingdom. But, as I mentioned earlier, how many people in the world tonight pray? It's not just Christians who pray. How many people in the world tonight perform good deeds? It's not just Christians who perform good deeds. Jesus sows his seed. The devil sows his. And that's the world we're in. And according to this parable, we're going to be in it until the harvest. That nothing's going to change from that point of view. That together... They're going to be there. But that leads us to think of this fact that one day the harvest is coming. And the harvest, according to this parable, is going to be all about separation. It's separation amongst those who could not be distinguished before the harvest. And that's quite extraordinary, isn't it, when we think about it that way. It also suggests there's going to be a lot of surprise. There's those who, sadly, Jesus says, the angels are going to gather them because they're not the right thing. And he says about them, but two features will mark them. And I, you may have noticed this long ago, but I only noticed it the other day. What two kinds of people are there? Or what two activities do these weeds, for lack of a better word, 
What do they engage in? And Jesus tells us what they do. He tells us in verse 41. He's going to take out of his kingdom all who cause sin. And all lawbreakers. That's a terrible description, isn't it? All who cause sin and lawbreakers. When I read that, I asked myself, did I ever cause somebody to sin? can cause people to sin by all kinds of things. Suggestions. Or you can annoy somebody. But you cause them to sin. And that's how Jesus defines those who are not the real thing. They cause people to sin. And they are lawbreakers. a very stark and a very simple to understand description. He also says when the harvest comes, now there's two features of these um, non-believers are going to experience. We're told there in verse 42, and it's a very solemn verse, but he says that their future after the harvest is going to be that of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Sorrow, regret, distress I find it hard to imagine what gnashing of teeth looks like I perhaps could imagine it for a couple of seconds but try imagining it forever I mean, it's a horrific description. Something that should disturb us. But this parable tells us that people, if we're Christians, this parable tells us that people who look like us are going to gnash their teeth. There's something awful about that, isn't there? Well, I suppose the thing that's been telling, is stressing to us is to make sure we're the right thing. That's the harvest. But then there's the coming kingdom. 
The righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. That also is a rather extraordinary verse. Because in it, there may be more than this, but I can see three wonderful truths in it. Who are we if we're going to be there? We're the righteous. What will we look like? We'll shine like the sun. Why does Jesus use that description? Well, I suspect he uses it because that's the most powerful picture of glorification that we can imagine. Imagine shining us, shining us the sun. Just imagine you were the sun. And you were somewhere and it was dark. And all of a sudden, some kind of button is pushed. And you start to shine like the sun. The whole place would be bright. And Jesus says, all his people will shine like the sun. Glorified. Incredible. And there they'll do it in the kingdom of his father. So that tells us about adoption, doesn't it? That we got an inheritance. So in that one sentence, Jesus speaks about justification, glorification, and adoption. And these three things are wonderful realities. And you know, the, they're not just going to be fulfilled in the future. Because if we're Christians, they're happening today. And I think this verse tells the difference between the seed and the weeds. We're righteous if we're Christians. Not self-righteous. But we're righteous because we believe in Jesus. And when we believed in Jesus, his righteousness was reckoned to our account. And we became children of God. What about the glorification? Well, Paul tells us that everyone who's a Christian inwardly has been changed from glory to glory. Glorification doesn't begin at the second coming. All that happens at the second coming is it becomes visible. It's already started inside the lives of all those who trust in Jesus. So this parable. Every parable, someone likened parables to grenades. You know, once a grenade comes, the place is not the same again. And Jesus' parable, nice, simple stories. 
but they can turn our lives upside down. And here he speaks about what happened every day in a farmer's field where there was weeds and good seed. And he turned it into something that actually should make us think very seriously about it. What lessons can we learn from this? Just a couple. Do we know who the righteous are? Do we need to know who they are? Is it enough to know that Jesus knows? That the Lord knows them that are his? And what he said to us, or at least to these disciples, about all the others is leave them. Leave them alone till the harvest. It's enough that Jesus knows. And at the end of the day, he'll sort it out. Before that, we'll never sort it out. Second lesson is, of course, the day of separation is coming. And whatever else may be said about 2022, we're closer to it than we ever were. And the day of separation is not just for them. It's also for us. It's for me and it's for you. It's coming. A third lesson from this parable is that there will always be people who look like Christians. Can't tell the difference. That is challenging. real test is not my outward behavior but inside that's the real test and the last lesson from it is this that it shows the importance of why we're to preach the gospel because I suspect that most people in the parable who look the same as Christians need to be told why they're not the same. And the only thing that tells them that is the gospel. So these are just some things from this rather stark parable. Shall we pray? Lord, we know that Jesus was the master storyteller. But he never told stories just to amuse. He always told them 
to get a response. Disciples didn't understand this one, and they asked to be taught. And no doubt what they discovered when they were, when it was explained to them, shook them. And your word is meant to shake us. Your word is not only a source of comfort, but your word can also dissect our hearts and reveal to us who we are. Lord, help us to bear in mind the day of judgment. We ask you, Lord, just to help us to live the way we should, that you would guide us and go before us. We thank you for the gospel, the gospel that makes the change. So, Lord, help us to love it and to live on it. Be with us there, we pray, for your own name's sake. Amen. We'll close by singing from Psalm 2 and sing Psalms, verses 7 to 12. The king then solemnly declares, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. Today your father I have become, you are my son, he said to me. Verses 7 to 12. The king then solemnly Oh.
May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen.